Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Central Church of Christ podcast. We're so glad you've joined us today. Just as a heads up, we are holding in-person services every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Also, if you'd like to join us for a to-go meal, we are serving those every Wednesday through our Bread of Life Cafe at 5.30 p.m. If you'd like to get more connected to our church, feel free to email centralchurch1 at gmail.com or call us at 513-481-5820. We look forward to hearing from you. And now, let's get back to the podcast. Good morning, everyone. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers here. Uh, Whether you are uh, actually someone's mother or you are uh, in that mode as somebody spiritually, um, we just want to acknowledge both of those realities here today. So thank you uh, to all the women in here who are mothers or mother figures to somebody. Uh, You've played an important role in all of our lives. Also, Brooklyn, thank you for being a champ and reading that still. Nothing like being surprised at the last minute, like, oh, wait, I'm supposed to read? It's totally cool, though. Happens to me all the time. So today, uh, we're continuing in John, as we just read, and we're going to talk about what I like to call the moat. You know, like, the moat? That's not even on the screen. The moat. The mother of all theology. Yes, I just went there. Resurrection. Resurrection, I call the mother of all theology as a nod to Mother's Day, of course. But resurrection is like the key thing for us to grasp. If you don't grasp anything else out of the New Testament, go for resurrection and you'll find, you'll figure out the other things as they need to come. But resurrection is like the key thing that the whole, really the whole Bible hinges on. All of history hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. But we're actually not going to talk about Jesus' particular resurrection today. We're going to talk a little bit more about resurrection in general. So without further ado, I was going to call this message The End Is Now, uh, but it seemed a little gloomy uh, for Mother's Day, so I decided to call it Resurrection Now. So we have the task of talking about eschatology. Big word, theological word, but I'm just going to call it the theology of the end. So we're talking about the theology of the end is really our goal today. And there's three things that are clear in this passage. Number one, Jesus obeys the will of the Father. He does nothing on his own initiative. He does what he hears the Father tell him to do. Number two, Jesus has been given authority to execute judgment. And number three, probably the most important one that we'll really focus on today is the dead, both the righteous and the unrighteous, will be raised. I don't know if you've ever even heard that, but even the unrighteous will be raised. Now let me clarify what that means later on. But the dead, the righteous and the unrighteous, will experience resurrection. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So focusing on the third point, resurrection in particular. And to do this, we need to discuss what the Bible tells us about God's promised future. That's what eschatology really is. We're talking about God's promised future for human beings. What does it mean to be a human being in God's world and where are we going? That's a question we're always asking, not even just in the church, not just as Christians, but people all over society are concerned about where we're going. Are we, and it's not just a matter of like your travels, but like where's our country headed? Where's the world headed? Where are we as a people going? 
People are always thinking about the future. We're very future-oriented beings, we human beings. So, in talking about the end times, my big contention to you today is to have a vision for something beyond the stereotypical ideas of the end times. Now, I'm going to say some things that might be a little bit new to you today, but I promise this is rooted in study of Scripture. And I'll just say a quick prayer before I really get into this, but I want us to have a vision for something beyond stereotypes of the end times. So let's just say a prayer together, and then we're going to talk about this. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning just humbled and amazed that we get to do this thing called church together. And in doing that, in our humility, we just come to you and ask that your words would be spoken today, that it would be made clear of what your purposes for human beings are, for us, and for the whole world. And help us learn that reality and then live into it. So let it not just stay as something in our minds, but let it be something that our whole selves agree to do, to live faithfully as Jesus did. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So stereotypical descriptions of the end times. One of the most stereotypical things I've heard that I absolutely like want to throw out the door <laughs> um, is this idea. So I'm holding the Bible here and... You know, I'm, I'm one of those preachers that actually does not like acronyms because acronyms are oversimplistic and usually uh, cause more confusion than more help. But I'm not totally against them. I just think there's sometimes that we need to leave them out the door. But one of the biggest acronyms that we need to be done with, we just need to be done with it, is this acronym called Bible. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it needs to go out the door. Basic instructions before leaving earth absolutely not true. And if that stirs your pot a little bit, I'm sorry, but that's just not, just not true. That's not how this functions. The Bible is not basic instructions before leaving earth because God created the world and said it was good. So we need to acknowledge that first. That kind of mentality needs to fall by the wayside and we need to adopt a more faithful and true reading of what the Bible actually is doing. So that one, we're, we need to be done with that because that's just not helpful because the goal of Christianity is not to leave earth. And you're like, wait a second, I thought I was going to go to heaven. Let me talk a little bit more about that as we get along. But, you know, just think of all these end times theories, you know, like, there's a guy named Harold Camping who's predicted that the world's going to end several times. And I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit skeptical after like the seventh time that I'm still standing here. Um, so I find that to be a little bit suspect. Also, I find it very convenient that people predict the end of the world when Jesus said he doesn't even know when uh, the Father's going to complete his work. Not even Jesus knew. So if you feel privy to that information and Jesus isn't, Congratulations. But uh, that's, that's not something that I would take lightly or be privy to do. So let's move beyond the stereotypes for a little bit. And let's see, what does the Bible actually have to say? Because this passage talks about God raising people several times. So if you're a first century Jewish person, the goal is not to go to heaven when you die. 
with a disembodied soul especially. So I actually grew up in a church and I was taught that the goal of my life is to be relatively good, to not mess up too much. And if I was good enough, then I could leave my body behind and my soul would go to some ethereal space called heaven. But no first century Jewish person thought that way. Actually, maybe very few did. Arguably, there's a Jewish man named Philo who might have thought that way. But most of them believed in something called resurrection, which is something entirely different than going to heaven when we die. The goal is to have a raised body in God's new creation. The book of Isaiah actually testifies to this. The prophet Isaiah testifies already to a new heavens and a new earth. That's not just a New Testament idea. It's been there for a long time. But a first century Jewish person is not thinking, I hope I leave this body behind. They're thinking, God is faithful and he's going to deal with the problem of death. So he's going to raise this body in God's new creation. So John 8, sorry, John 5, 28 to 29 also has something to say about this. I want to highlight this one more time for you. Jesus says this, Do not be amazed because a time is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice and will come out, the ones who have done what is good to the resurrection resulting in life. The ones who have done what is evil to the resurrection resulting in condemnation. They're going to, he's saying that bodies are going to come out of tombs and they're going to experience what is called being raised or what we call resurrection. So I'm going to show you a diagram here. Yes. Okay. It worked. All right. So I, I decided to do a little like lame <laughs> uh, diagram for you all, but hopefully it makes sense. I want to show you first what the classic Jewish expectation of the end times would be for lack of a better term. So you see like this bottom line, this is kind of where things are. They're not great. Sin has infected the world. People are not doing what is right. They're not doing what a human being should do. So they're awaiting God's answer to the problem of evil and sin and death in the world. So their expectation is that someone in the line of David, the Messiah will come. And you'll see at that point that the Messiah comes. When the Messiah comes, He's going to, first of all, rid Israel of paganism, and then he will start to make things better. All it means is that things will only get better as the Messiah comes, and then finally he'll finish his work, and then everybody at once will be raised at the very end, and the age to come starts. So Messiah comes, makes things better, and then we're all happy because we've been raised to eternal life. Things are far better. That was the classic Jewish view, but they never thought that the Messiah would come and warp them up to heaven. They thought the Messiah will come and he will raise our bodies because God's going to make all things new. But Jesus, so first of all, let's say this, Jesus actually affirms resurrection. He does not, he's not a Sadducee, in other words. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did, and arguably this other group called the Essenes also did. But Jesus affirms the resurrection of the body. 
Like God created human beings. He made your body and my body. And he said it was good. I mean, if you're having, if you're like me, and sometimes you just struggle with your self-image, you know, just remember, first of all, Jesus affirms that the body is good. If culture, like, totally rips apart our self-image, God still says that you are made in his image and you are good. So your body is not something to, to dispose of. But Jesus also does something different than many of his contemporaries. So he believes in the resurrection of the body, but I'm about to show you another diagram that describes what the early Christian view of resurrection would look like. Sorry. Did it go past it? Maybe? Okay. So, in the early Christian view, we have this view. All right, you have that bottom line, right? Where things aren't so great in the world, sin is broken and marred the world, but then they're still expecting the Messiah. The Messiah comes, and we're going to say it's Jesus in this case, and things do start to, to get better. Things are headed towards God's promises, towards God's purposes for the world. But then the cross happens. This is actually the moment where God inaugurates the kingdom on earth as in heaven. It's the beginning of the kingdom. Just as a president is inaugurated in any country and that they begin their rule over a country, so Jesus begins his kingdom project on the cross. That's his inauguration, in other words. And his resurrection seals it. Jesus is raised in the middle of history. So what happens is things are, yes, getting better on one hand, but on the other hand, we're still feeling the brokenness of the world beneath us. So there's kind of a squiggly line between those two parallel lines, but that's where we live. We live in a constant tension between God's promised age to come and the present age that's still kind of broken and messed up. We live in a tension between those two until... Jesus returns. We live in a tension between those two times. So if you love diagrams and you want me to send this to you, maybe I'll have uh, Kim send it out this week, the PowerPoint. You're welcome to look at it and uh, just process it a little bit more. But the idea is that Jesus came. He inaugurated the kingdom. Now, it's not everything's happy-go-lucky all of a sudden, but it's Things are constantly pulling towards God's purposes. That this present age will fade away and the age to come will happen in its fullness when Jesus returns. That is, in a nutshell, the Christian view of the end times. I want to go back to John 5, 24, though. John 5, 24 says this, I tell you the solemn truth, the one who hears my message and believes the one who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned, but has crossed over from death to life. Here's the other vastly important thing that you need to know. Eternal life is not a future reality exclusively. It's something that happens now. Because John uses present tense language here. It's not just about the future. It's very interesting. He says this, the one who hears my message and believes, 
The one who sent me has eternal life. Not will have eternal life. You have it today. If you believe that the Father has sent Jesus into the world, like John's making it abundantly clear, you're not someday going to have eternal life. You have eternal life starting now. And then it says that person will not be condemned, but has crossed over from death to life. You've already crossed over from death to life. That's something John, again, has Jesus showing us that this matters. In John's gospel, you don't just think la-di-da-di-da about the future. You say the future has come in the person of Jesus. I don't have to wait until I die to start living a good life. You don't have to wait until you die. Eternal life starts now. This is clear throughout the whole gospel of John. And eternal life is actually the language that he uses for the kingdom. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, love to use kingdom of God language. John uses eternal life. But this matters so deeply because we can't settle for like this lukewarm life. We can't settle for unfaithfulness. Because we live, like in that diagram, we live between those two parallel lines. We live between the ages. The age to come hasn't come in its fullness. But the present age is not going to last forever either. And this is probably the hardest thing to grasp as a Christian. Like, we live in a world that is obviously broken. We live in a world that doesn't make sense. And, and I fear that a lot of our talk about the, the afterlife or the age to come sets us up to live a very shallow life. When we talk about, yes, I'll say a prayer, yes, I'll be baptized, but then nothing about me has changed because I sealed the deal. I'm just going to go to heaven when I die. When we talk like that, we don't look at all like Jesus. I mean, we just have to come to grips with that. If, if that's our view of what God is doing, that, you know, all you got to do is get this test right, and then you can go to heaven. Ace that test right off the bat, and then you're good. There's a major problem. is lacking discipleship, which is being formed more and more into the image of Jesus. That's what this life is for. Because Jesus was fully God, but he was also the true human being. You want to see someone who models what it means to live a good life, faithful life? You look at Jesus. And he did it in the present. He didn't just do it in the future. I just can't stress this enough. Like, I know that most of us growing up probably heard that you go to heaven when you die. And, you know, it's really okay if you just, you know, don't care about discipleship in the meantime. I once heard it said that if you don't love Jesus now, what makes you think you're going to love him in eternal life? I mean, if you don't want to follow the pattern of his life, death, and resurrection, 
why, why, why do you think eternal life is going to matter to you? I know it's a difficult question to pose, but it's got to be asked. Because there's no, absolutely no reason that if God hadn't already established the kingdom, that Jesus' first followers would go and live a life that mostly led to their deaths. There's zero reason they would do that. Like, why rock the boat of the Roman Empire if all you got to do is live a very quiet life away from confrontation and then just go to heaven? It's just not it. I know this is like a heavy teaching sermon, but it's really hard to understand what Jesus was doing in John's gospel or any of the gospels for that matter if we don't understand that he's showing that the kingdom has come. That's why we sang that song. We, the kingdom has come and it is coming. The kingdom has come and it is coming. We need to live faithfully between the ages. I just want to end with a couple thoughts. The best description I've heard of how this works, and if you really like big phrases, this is what it's really called. It's called inaugurated eschatology. It means that the future has come into the present. But the best description I've heard of this, and it's not a perfect one by any means, but it it makes sense. World War II obviously was a devastating tragedy for many countries throughout the world, but what happened was in 1944, the war actually began to end. The war began to end because the Allied forces landed in Normandy. At that point, the war was not over, but it was over because the Allies had finally broken through And they were able to push back forces of Germany. And Germany never caught up. Now here's the thing. The reason this analogy works is because, yes, the war kind of ended in that moment. Like that was sealing the deal. Like there was no coming back for Germany at that point. But between the June 6, 1944 moment and the 1945 moment, there were still a lot of casualties. There was still a lot of hurt and pain and heartache. And I thought that was a really good description of kind of what the kingdom is like. Though, you know, we don't fight flesh and blood, we, we also have this image going on. Jesus established the kingdom on the cross. He was raised to life. He's seated at the throne. But the thing is, there's still casualties between the cross and, the, and our resurrection, between the cross and Jesus' return. There's still pain, there's still heartache, there's still sin in the world. But that's not the end of the story either, because Jesus sealed the victory on the cross, he overcame the powers, and now we look forward in hope just as I'm sure the Allies looked forward and hoped that the war would be over soon, 
we look forward and hope that Jesus will return and make all things new. And here's the other thing I wanted to share with you before we end, and it's this. The kingdom is just God's reign on earth as it is in heaven. That's all it is. But it's everything. And in God's kingdom, there is no place for death anymore. There is no place for, like, constant sinfulness. I'm not saying you don't make mistakes. It's not, please do not hear me saying that. What I am saying is, when we settle for a life of unfaithfulness, that doesn't lead to life. We want God to make all things new. Resurrection starts now. Jesus said that we have crossed from death to life. We've crossed from death to life. And if you've never done that before, you want to know what that's about, let's talk. Like, we can get the waters of baptism going. I have no problem with that. But even if you just want to discuss what it means to live between the ages, between the good things that God is doing in this world and the struggle with the tension in this world of sin and death that's still present. Let's talk about that too. But I want to kind of go off script a little for a moment because it just, I don't know, I, just, I guess I just felt like I needed to do this in this moment. But I just want to invite us to sing that chorus one more time. That God let your kingdom come. Because it's a prayer. We live between this tension of things are great on the one hand because God has achieved the victory in Jesus, but we also struggle with the fact that sin is still in the world. The kingdom has come and it will come in its fullness when Jesus returns. And I don't know what your tension is exactly, but I want to invite you to just sing this prayer with me one more time. If you'll stand with me, I would love to just sing this with you one more time. May your will be done, God let your kingdom come. God let your kingdom come. May your will be done, God let your kingdom come. Sing it one more time, just our voices. God let your kingdom come. May your will be done. God lets your kingdom come.